I want some things firmly etched in our minds so that we understand. Uh, I did propose to you that very possibly the abomination of desolation of Matthew 24 and of Daniel has to do with God's church, the end-time temple, and not the Jews in a physical temple in Jerusalem as a matter of review. Now that is a departure from the direction of our thinking in the past and perhaps up until the, the present. And I do not want to make that uh, possibility known or spoken of without giving you enough background to understand where I'm coming from in saying it. Uh, can it be so? Could we have been wrong all those years? Could all those Protestant commentators be wrong about the flow of history and their explanation of the book of Daniel? Can it be so simple as to be talking about the church? How many brains do we need to understand? Is, it not, is not God's way simple enough that even a child can understand? If given the right keys to understanding. Proverbs 14:16 says, "Knowledge is easy to him who understands." When we understand certain things, then knowledge is easy. And that applies to most anything. Uh, if you're going to understand algebra, there are certain rules you need to know. And if you know those rules firmly, then it makes algebra fairly easy. Well, maybe easy for some. Maybe that was not a good analogy. They gave me the keys, and I still didn't do too well in algebra, but that was a lack on me, I think, as much as anything. But having the keys to knowledge makes a lot of difference. And I, to use an example, let's say there's a bank vault you want in. The things are armored, they're heavy metal, they have huge doors and very heavy locks on them. And you could take sledgehammers and axes and chainsaws and anything you want, try to get in there, uh, even uh, welding machines, cutting torches, and have a very great difficulty getting into a bank vault. And you might take a crew of ten strong men in there with all the tools that they can muster and not be able to break into that vault. But then an 80-year-old lady in a wheelchair, if she has the keys and wheel herself up there, turn the key in the lock, and very easily open the bank vault. And the scriptures are the same way. If you have keys to understanding the scriptures of God, then it's easy. If you don't have the keys, it's a mess. I was reading a little bit of, among the commentaries about the book of Daniel and uh, Barnes Notes, which I go to fairly often when I want to use a commentary, said that I don't understand the book of Daniel, but I'll explain it anyway. He didn't put it in those exact words, but that's pretty much what he said. I'll give it my best shot, in other words. And sure enough, I don't think he understood it. In fact, I know he didn't. He understood some of the history, but he didn't understand the book. He didn't understand the meaning and the purpose, and he didn't know who it pertained to. And those are the things that we need to understand. Now, we talked quite a bit, and I have in the past, about physical Israel and the Jews uh, and how they 
do not have a say today. They have no authority today. They have no meaning as far as the resurrection is concerned today. That is, until the second. They simply are not involved in what is going on at the end time. And today I want to go to the book of Revelation, because it goes hand in hand with Daniel. And Barnes did make the comment that you simply have no chance of understanding Daniel unless you include Revelation, that the two books are simply inseparably entwined. That many of the uh, empires that are mentioned there, much of the language that having to do with the holy people and the saints and so on, the language is the same. So I feel that we should go to the book of Revelation today as a preparatory course, and I'll just give you an overview of it. But there's very little mentioned about the physical Jews in the book of Revelation. Have you ever noticed that? The first reference that I think of is those who say they are Jews and art in Revelation 3. And it's speaking there in the context of the church. Some who say they are spiritual Jews, but are not. They aren't really of the truth. They are mentioned in connection with 144,000 as one of the 12 tribes there. But that's speaking of a spiritual uh, 12 tribes, and 12,000 and 144,000, that is 12 times 12,000. Not of the physical people as such. Now, I suspect that a great number of those people are Israelites, but remember in Romans 11, Paul said, Romans 9 through 11, a great deal about this, and that the Gentiles had been grafted in. So all those people who are of the tribe of, let's say, Ephraim or Manasseh are not necessarily from those tribes. There will be some Chinese in there. There will be Japanese in there. There will be blacks and browns and yellows and whites in there because they've been grafted into Israel. Now, the, the shadow is there. The meaning is there from the Old Testament, the type, but those are not necessarily all of the tribe of Israel. Not only are the Gentiles grafted in, but remember that the apostles are to be over the 12 tribes that, that are mentioned there in Revelation. And apparently the apostles were all Benjamites. So you're going to have a Benjamite over Ephraim, you'll have a Benjamite over Gad and Asher. So they, those who are even over the tribes aren't from the same tribe of the tribe that they're ruling. And you had several sets of brothers among the apostles as well. So if they were brothers, they had to have been of the same tribe, and therefore if you get 12 brothers over 12 tribes and some of the sets were brothers, you simply could not mathematically have an, a Reuben over Reuben and a Gadite over Gad. See what I mean? So that is a spiritual designation. It has nothing to do with physical Israel per se. God can put us in whatever tribe he wants us to be in. And some of us are so mixed up and so many races within that one person that God would have to decide which tribe he wanted you in anyway. And whatever your particular gifts, whatever your particular abilities, might decide which tribe he wants you in as a part of the 144,000. 144,000, remember, are the first fruits. And all the first fruits are there. And God has a mixture of peoples among the first fruits. A lot of people have thought, well, those 144,000 there 
12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, except Dan, uh, were all physically of those tribes. And I think it can be easily shown that that is not so. Uh, Revelation 11 talks about the two prophets. Now let me ask you a question. There, let, let's, maybe I'll go back there even before we get into this too much. Revelation 11. He says, And there was given me a reed like to a rod, and the angel said, stood, saying, Rise, and measure the temple of God, and the altar, and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple, leave out, and measure it not, for it is given to the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty-two months. Who's the holy city? Hebrews 12, 22 through 23. We, the church, are the holy city. We are the ones that are going to be trampled. Luke 21, Matthew 24, Daniel 11, and the book of Revelation in several places talks about the holy people being killed. Who do they want to trample? They don't want to trample the Mormons, the Baptists, the Catholics, the Buddhists. Satan and his minions want to trample God's people. Now I ask you, this is the chapter about the two witnesses. If the Jews built a temple in Jerusalem, Israel, do you think they would give two ministers from the Worldwide Church of God or its offshoots jurisdiction there to measure the temple, to be involved in the temple, to say what happens in that temple? Or would they give it to their own rabbis? See, it isn't talking about a physical temple in, Israel, in Jerusalem, Israel at all. It's talking about the spiritual temple. I cannot emphasize that enough. Remember the book of Hebrews, that all that went before the New Testament and the New Covenant and the church that Jesus Christ built on Pentecost 30 or 31 A.D., everything that went before that was a shadow of what was to come, as Paul clearly shows. I ask you, how much substance does a shadow have? You can't grab it, can't feel it, it simply moves with the body. What he's saying, the real substance is, is the New Testament church. That all that went before the New Testament church is merely the shadow that follows it, follows it around. That out of all those things came spiritual sacrifice. Out of all those things came a spiritual high priest as opposed to Aaron. Out of that came a ministry to oversee the New Testament church as opposed to the Levitical priesthood. And he says clearly there there was a change in the priesthood. It wasn't obliterated, it was changed. That priesthood was only a shadow of that which was to come. So everywhere you look in the book of Hebrews, the whole idea there was to convince those people that the physical temple had no meaning, that the New Testament church is what God is working with. I ask you, where do you find in the Bible any instruction to build a physical temple at the end time? I don't think you'll find it. The only instruction is that basically given in Haggai where it says to build a temple and is speaking of a spiritual temple. And he's speaking to Zerubbabel and Joshua who are the two witnesses to build that temple that he, God, would stir up the people to come, a remnant of the church, 
And that temple would be built under the two witnesses. So if you're looking for authority to build a temple, that's where you have to look. A physical temple has had no meaning since the veil was rent at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I've talked about this quite a bit, but I want to emphasize it a little more before we get into the book of Revelation, which is where we're going to go now. We saw last week that Matthew 24, Luke 21, are talking about the church. And the saints, the holy people, the disciples, the apostles, are the same as those mentioned in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 5 by Paul the spiritual temple. We are the temple of God. We are of his building. We are a temple not made with hands, as Paul said in the book of Hebrews. So, let's have a look now at Revelation, see what it has to say. This is not the Revelation of St. John, as it says at the top of the book in my Bible, because it says clearly in the very first statement, the Revelation of Jesus Christ. It makes you wonder how much some of those Protestants and their commentaries really understand. They call it the revelation of St. John the Divine. Anyway, who, to whom is this written? Verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be to you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. It's written to the church, isn't it? Now, does that give you a clue that this book, all the way through, is going to be emphasizing and focusing on the church? And that the other prophecies written for the end time, since Revelation, almost the most prophetic of all books, is written about the church, that the others might also have something to do with the church. Does that follow logically? He mentioned the seven spirits which are before his throne. Who is that? You go to chapter 5, verse 6, and it explains that. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. So the eyes are the seven spirits of God, or angels, and there is an angel for each church, as we will see. Now this is also mentioned in Zechariah 3. Let's turn back there for a moment. Let's tie Zechariah, as well as Matthew 24 and Luke 21, into this, because it has a great deal of bearing on, uh, on the book of Daniel as well, when we get there. Here in Zechariah 3, uh, let's see, I want verse 9. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. We're going to have a foundation stone here. Jesus Christ is the foundation. But seven eyes, which you've already seen identified in Revelation 5-6 as the seven spirits of God, the spirits of the seven churches. So before Joshua is laid, a stone with seven eyes, seven spirits, i.e. seven churches. And we can go to Isaiah 4, and we'll see that to one man, seven women come. All seven churches are going to come before the two witnesses. You can go to 
chapter 4 here, and it begins to describe Zerubbabel. It talks about a candlestick of gold, and verse 2, with a bowl upon the top, and his seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps, which are upon the top thereof. And then it talks about the two olive trees, which verse 14 tells us are the two anointed ones that stand before the Lord of the whole earth. So you go to Revelation 11, and it says these are the two anointed ones. So Zechariah 3 and 4 are tied in, inseparable, inseparable from the book of Revelation, and also from the book of Daniel, and from Matthew 14 and Luke 21. Or Matthew 24, I meant. Verse 14, where they give the, the warn, final warning message. So let's go back then to Revelation 1. Uh, talks about Christ coming back, very much an end-time book, verse 7. Uh, verse 11, Jesus Christ is saying, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book, that's this book, and send it to the seven churches. The seven churches will all exist at the end. Yes, they may have existed nose to tail in a, in a type from the church of the early apostles until today, uh, and I think that that is true, because the primary and most influential attitude today is Laodicea. But still in all, there's much internal proof that all seven churches will exist at the end. For seven to take hold of one man, and for Joshua to be given uh, a stone with seven eyes, seven spirits of seven churches, they all have to exist at the end because he's a physical man, as is Zerubbabel. And we're going to see here very shortly now that uh, the candlesticks and everything that had to do that we talked about there, or read in Zechariah 4, have to do with the churches in the book of Revelation as well. Uh, let's go on down and see that. Verse 12, I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like the Son of Man, describes Christ. And then he's told down here, after the full description, write the things which you have seen, verse 19, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which you saw are the seven churches. So all seven churches are involved with Zerubbabel and Joshua of Zechariah 3 and 4. The imagery, uh, the description, is all the same. Speaking of one and the same thing. And then we don't need to go through chapters 2 and 3 in detail but we know that those are messages to the seven churches. I'll point out quickly one example of Thyatira, and it said, All the churches, verse 23, shall know that I am he which searches the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works, each one of you churches. If it had only been a fulfillment down through history, how would those churches which had already deceased see what was happening to Thyatira? They could not. How could those churches which came after Thyatira see what happened to Thyatira? Only as a historical note, and that history is very, very hard to even follow. So the point, I think, is very clear that all seven will exist at the end, and all seven will have something to do with 
according to Isaiah 4, Zechariah 3 and 4, the two witnesses. So this whole section, Revelation 2 and 3, is written to whom? To the churches who exist here at the end time. Now let's move on. Let's see, I want to go to chapter 4, I guess. Here is a chapter that doesn't mention the church particularly, except it mentions the seven spirits of God in verse 5, but it's a description of the throne of God, throne set in heaven. But before that throne, verse 5, are the seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So there are seven lamps of fire before God's throne, which represent the seven churches. Is it possible we could turn this fan a little bit from me? It keeps blowing my pages shut, if someone wouldn't mind. Maybe take it off oscillation or something. I'd rather be hot than read the wrong page. It, it doesn't matter, just, just as long as it doesn't blow on the page here. Okay, then let's go to chapter 5. Uh, I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. So here's a book. You remember how they used to seal envelopes before we got the little lickies on the, the flap? They would shut the thing and then they would put a seal of wax on the outside to hold it shut. And that's what was done here. They had a book and it had seven seals on it. They closed it up. When it's closed up like that, you can't read it. Don't know what it means because it has a seal on it. You have to unseal a letter before you can read it. So parts of the book of Revelation perhaps have been sealed as well, haven't they? He told Daniel specifically to seal it, but uh, he wasn't told here. John was not told to seal it, but he did see a book that had seven seals on it. And no one could open that seal except one. Verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who is that? Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone of the church. What, what did he write about? What did he preach about and speak about all through his ministry? The New Testament church. He trained a ministry for that church in that three and a half years and constantly referred to it. Matthew 16, 18, he talked about giving authority to it. Other chapters we read showed that he took the authority away from the Jews completely. So, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth in all the earth. In other words, Christ is depicted here of having seven eyes. We've already seen that the seven eyes are the seven spirits of God. Now, he, we are built in his image, so he actually only has two, but the imagery here is of seven eyes. In other words, before him are these seven eyes, or seven spirits. He controls those seven spirits, those seven angels. So they are before him. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne, now, interesting, this ceiling that is talked about here of this book has to do with what? The seven eyes, the seven spirits. What is being unsealed here by Christ is information about 
the called out ones. I hesitate to use church, but it's a common term. It's talking about the congregation. It's talking about the assembly. It's talking about the called out of this world. That's what this book is about. We saw that in chapter 1, 2, and 3, and it's reiterated right here. But to understand what's going on here that is behind those seals, you have to understand about the church. And anyone who is not knowledgeable about the true church of God today simply can't understand. Only we who are a part of it can understand. I mean, if you don't even know who it's talking about, how can you understand it? It's not talking about the Protestant world. There you see. It's not talking about the Catholics or the Buddhists. It's only talking about the seven churches of Revelation and Zechariah 4. That's all it can be talking about. Now that is an important key to understanding. And when you go to Hebrews 12, 22, and 23, and you see that the church is also Zion and Jerusalem and Galatians 6 and 4, and see that we are the Israel of God, you begin to have the keys that can unlock the prophecies. You have to understand who they are talking about. The physical Israel was only a shadow of spiritual Israel. Spiritual Israel has the substance. It has the promises. It has the truth. Physical Israel is wandering around out there without any substance, virtually any truth, and no relationship with God. Physical Israel is consigned unto, or to, the second resurrection. Isn't that what Paul said? That they are concluded in unbelief. Romans 11. He will deal with them later. He's only dealing with the church today. He only needs 144,000, that's all, to finish his plan. So, when, he, when Jesus Christ opens this to understanding, it says, verse 7, And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. Here again, the emphasis is on the church. And they sung a new song. This is projecting forward to the resurrection. You were worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for you were slain and you have redeemed us. Who are the redeemed? You can go through the New Testament. Paul has references to those who are redeemed. He's talking about the New Testament church. Us to God by the blood, by your blood, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Now that shows you right there that the 144,000 who are the first fruits in the New Testament church was the first fruits. Paul called the Galatian, the Ephesian, Colossian church, I don't remember exactly which ones, but in several places he referred to those churches which are basically of Gentile origin as first fruits. So the first fruits are made up of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And have made to us our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. He's showing that when this scenario that he is going to lay out in the book of Revelation is all over, <coughs> the saints, the redeemed, the sanctified, the set apart, the called out of God will rule the earth under Jesus Christ. No matter what comes up, I think sometimes we look at the governments of this world and I think we fear too much. We become paranoid a little too much. 
as Mr. Armstrong said, in the end, we win. All we have to do is fear God, not the governments and the peoples and the hordes of this world. We win. What more do we need to know? That's why Isaiah 8 says there is a conspiracy or a confederacy, same word, same meaning, synonyms. There is a confederacy, and Psalm 83 and other scriptures echo and show that a great company of nations will come against Israel, and they will destroy physical Israel, and we've seen many scriptures which show that the church also is going to be destroyed. And we'll see that in Daniel 11. We see that in Revelation 12. We see that in Matthew 24, that they will kill the saints. All those scriptures tie closely together. It's all talking about the church. Nothing else, nothing more. The church pitted against the kingdoms of this world. I think we fail to see the international stage on which this will be played out. I touched on that at the end of the Minor Prophet series there at the end of Malachi, showing how Moses went before the greatest kingdom on earth at that time, Egypt, and his snakes ate their snakes, about how Elijah went before the 400 prophets of Baal and made fools of them and then killed them. And Moses and Elijah are definitely connected in Scripture to the two witnesses. Chapter 11 says they will be given power of God. And a lot of people quote Daniel 12, which says that these things will end when the power of the holy people has been shattered or scattered. And they think, well, we must be near because the church is almost apart and it's almost shattered. I don't think that's the correct explanation of that. The church has not yet been given power. We've had just a tiny bit. We've had some healings. We were given enough power financially uh, to go and call out some from the world, a pitiful few. I mean, we thought we were getting pretty big when we had 120, 30, 40,000 around the earth. And compare when Christ said, fear not little flock, he meant that his church would always be small. But when we had 130, 40,000, we thought we were pretty powerful, didn't we? That's nothing. There's billions of people on this earth. And we were really small and did not have power to do even what they did in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. We didn't even begin to have the kind of power that Joel talks about and that Peter thought was happening on that day of Pentecost when he said, well, this must be the day that Joel was talking about. Our young men will dream dreams and our young maids and our old men and our women and so on. And massive healings took place, even the shadow of the apostles passing over people healed them. That's power. God gave them a certain amount of power, and that power only lasted a certain amount of time, and it began to die out in the New Testament church. As attitudes went south, and as the apostasy began, there was less and less and less power in the apostles and in the early New Testament church. We never had, in this age, that kind of power that he gave them then. We had just enough power to do the job that Herbert Armstrong was called to do, that is, call many, that a few might be chosen. It's all the power we had. When we get back here a few chapters down, we'll see real power given to the church. And only when that power is shattered and scattered will the end come. And it will be, three and a half days before the first resurrection, completely destroyed.
That's when the real shattering and scattering of the power of God's people is finished. Now, it'll diminish from even what we had, but we've never had real power yet. Just very, very limited power in this day and age. The latter temple is going to be given enormous power. Okay, we shall reign on the earth. This whole book, then, is a confrontation between the kingdoms of this world and the church of God. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. You'll see that as we go on through here. Uh, chapter 6. It talks about the white horse, the red horse, the black horse, and the pale horse as being the first four seals. And I think this gives a sense to the conflict. I haven't looked it up to really look into that. But there's a bit of a conflict between Matthew 24 and Luke 21. As I said last week, uh, Matthew 24 says that you'll have these four, first four seals and then the death of the saints. Luke 21 talks about the death of the saints and then the four se first four seals. But the book of Revelation lays it out very clearly, and I'm sure there's an explanation to that, even though I have not looked into it seriously. Uh, it talks here about uh, the famine, the pestilence, the earthquakes, and so on, the sword. Verse 9, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Now this could only be referring to true saints of the New Testament church plus a few patriarchs from the Old Testament because that's all it will be in the first resurrection. Now it's under the altar. What altar? The spiritual temple. It's not talking about a physical temple. We've not had a physical temple mentioned here anywhere. Slain for the word of God. Ancient Israel despised, forgot, and left the word of God. Even the, the Jews who were given the assignment of keeping it didn't follow it. In vain do you worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men, Christ said. Even in his day, he would not walk in Jewry, it is said. They had gotten rid of the Old Testament in favor of the traditions of men. Then they rejected Christ and the New Testament, so they rejected the whole Bible. These are people who died for the word of God and the testimony which they held here in verse 9. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, do you not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? This is about vengeance. This is about vengeance from the church, through God, upon the kingdoms of this world. That's what this book is all about. And white robes were given unto every one of them, white robes being a delineation of righteousness. And it was said to them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that they should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. You see the tie-in here with Daniel 11 and the saints being killed with Matthew 24 and Luke 21 about the saints being killed? It's talking about the same events. Right at the end, all those people have to stay in their graves until we also have been killed. Got a lot to look forward to, don't we? Well, some will escape if they do the things they should do. But after the remnant of the church escapes, Satan comes and makes war 
those who are left and is given power to kill them. Only a small amount, about 10% of that which was, will be protected. The rest will go into the tribulation and probably most, if not all, will be killed during that three and a half years, having to be martyrs to prove that they will not accept the mark of the beast, but will follow God's ways, and that will be a death sentence. No question about it. You refuse to follow the beast, you will be killed. And then the sixth seal talks about the great day of his wrath coming, chapter 7, and after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, uh, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. A seal delineating who they are, what they are, and protecting them. You can go into the seals throughout the New Testament and prove what that's talking about. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Spiritual Israel, not physical Israel. We've already covered that. And then it talks about some who come later. After this, verse 9, a great multitude, which I think can be proved, is talking about the second resurrection, not later. Now let's go down to chapter 8. And when he'd opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of a half hour, and then the seven trumpets came. Notice here the subject again. Another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. Not physical sacrifices in a physical temple, but the prayers of the saints are the sacrifice before the altar of God. Remember Hebrews 13, where it says, or chapter, I guess in chapter 12, where it says, we have an altar which the Jews have no right to worship before. The real sacrifice that will sway God's mind in all this is the prayers of the saints. He was so frustrated with mankind that he destroyed all mankind and intended to destroy, destroy every last single individual and scrap the whole plan in Genesis 6. But there was one righteous man, Noah. And he preserved Noah and his family. He was ready to destroy all Israel, but Moses prevailed, and Israel was saved physically. But even Moses had to die before Israel could go into the Promised Land. So throughout history, and the history of Israel as well as the rest of the world, when God has gotten very, very angry, what has been the key to saving anyone? Remember Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, if I find 50, okay, I'll save it. You know, went down the line. Weren't that many. But righteousness prevails with God. If you want to prevail with God, then what do you need to do? Become righteous. Become like him. Think like him and act like him. That's what this whole thing is about. God would destroy all mankind from off the face of the earth if it were not for the righteous saints and their prayers before him. Remember, all flesh would be destroyed. 
No one would be saved alive. It says there in Matthew 24, does it not? I think that echoes what I'm trying to show here. Let's see. Verse 22 of Matthew 24. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. And if it were possible, even the very elect would be deceived. That's how bad this is going to get. And that's how much of an international scene that this is enacted upon. God would destroy all the kingdoms of the earth and all the people that live on the earth right at the end except for the few who will obey him. Now that should not puff us up and give us a big head. It should humble us and it should make us want to strive for righteousness, not just for our own skins, but God's plan be preserved and that our brothers and sisters be saved as well. So the thing that stands between the destruction of the whole earth at the end time and the salvation ultimately of the world is the prayers of the saints. If God can find out of all the history of mankind, 50, 60 billion people they estimate, if he can find 144,000, he will save them. And I know that he will find them because he stated that all Israel shall be saved. Most of the church will, speaking of spiritual Israel, ultimately. And most of physical Israel will as well in this millennium and second resurrection. God is a God who succeeds. He is not one who fails. So he has stated that somehow, some way, he is going to save us if we respond to him. He will save. It's just a matter of who will yield and who will not and whether individuals will be there or not. But the plan is going to work. So realize the critical uh, importance we have to the plan of God here at the end. Now, he can raise up stones, but he's called us and is working with us and choosing us instead, we hope. He will choose some. And each of us wants to be one of those who is chosen, not just called. And that's what this is all about. <clears throat> and the smoke of the incense came with the prayers of the saints, verse 4, ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. The only thing that is holding God's hand back from destroying every man, woman, and child on earth is your prayers and mine. Isn't that what this says in so many words? And it ties in with all the examples of history as well. So the angel took the censer, verse 5, and filled it with the fire of the altar. That's the altar that uh, is spoken of in Revelation 11 and in Hebrews that I talked about. And cast it into the earth. There is an altar before the throne of God, too. And maybe that's what this is talking about more than that. But that altar is our altar. We go before the throne of God. That's where our altar is, ultimately and cast it into the earth, and there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. This is done with a great dramatic show, and seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound, and then all kinds of things happen here on the earth. 
So he says, you people are the only thing that's holding back total destruction, and then destruction starts. And verse 13 says, woe, 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 three woes to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound. So it's going to get worse, he says. The fifth, the sixth, and so on are then given. Notice in verse uh, 4 of chapter 9. And it was commanded them, they were given, here, here the fifth trumpet is about to sound, they were given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, uh, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. If you're not one of the sealed of God, you're going to be fair game. If you are of the sealed of God, you'll be protected. That gives me great motivation to be one of those who is sealed. And it was given to them that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months, and their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he strikes a man. If you've ever been snapped, popped by a scorpion, and the immediate pain that comes, you get a little bit of a, an idea. It'll be so bad, verse 6, In those days shall men seek death, and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. It shows here at the end of chapter 9 that no matter what is wreaked upon this earth in terms of punishment, men will not repent. Egypt never repented. Pharaoh made a show of it, but he never did do it. Nebuchadnezzar even gave lip service to the God in heaven, but he never bowed his knees and truly served God, except to destroy Judah and became the servant of God in that way. Now let's go down to chapter 10. talks about the seven thunders uttering their voices. Some have said that the seven thunders are the seven messages of the churches thundered out. I don't know whether that's true or not. It could be, I suppose. It just simply doesn't explain it here. So that is a speculative issue, and uh, I don't care to speculate further on it. I don't know. Verse 7, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound... The mystery of God should be finished as he has declared to his servants the prophet. This gives you, or prophets, this gives you several things. It gives you a time element. The seventh trump, as we know, is the seven last plagues. So before the seventh angel sounds, just as he begins to sound, just as the seven last plagues are unleashed, what happens? The first resurrection. That is when the mystery of God is finished. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. So the mystery of God, even though we understand it, we still look through a glass darkly, don't we? We can't really grasp what it would be like to be immortal, to be spirit, to be God. But that is what is before us. And that mystery won't be finished, it won't be completely revealed, it won't be understood until we rise from the earth. Then we'll understand. I think this ties in very well with the thought that we've discussed more recently that Christ's bride will be at the throne of God with him for a year during that day of the Lord, which follows the great tribulation of three and a half years. Matthew 24 or 5 clearly states that the day of the Lord comes after the tribulation of those days. And the mystery of God sounds and is finished before the seven last plagues are poured out. So we'll be gone. We'll have risen to meet Christ in the air when the seven last plagues hit mankind. And then, boy, destruction 
is turned loose. There's been destruction and pain and misery before, but once the mystery of God is finished, the first resurrection has occurred, then God just lets it out. Seven last plagues. All right, let's go down to verse 11 of 10. And he said to me, You must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. When John wrote this, he was a very, very old man about to die. So it is not talking about him. But what he did represent was the leadership of the church at that time. And immediately after, he makes this statement in verse 10 and in verse 11, uh, you begin to see unveiled the leadership of the last church of God before the return of Jesus Christ. There was given me a reed like a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God. What's the temple of God? The people of God today. It doesn't have anything to do with physical Jews. It is the spiritual temple of God. And the altar, and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it is given to the Gentiles. The two witnesses who are being introduced here in the next few verses have first to do with the church not a message to the world. And that's what is revealed in Zechariah 3 and 4, where the seven eyes on the stone were given to Joshua, and the seven candlesticks and all that is in Zechariah 4 is given to those two who stand beside and are instructed to give oil to the seven churches. When those virgins awake, it says, go to them that have and buy. <coughs> that's the only work left on the earth at that time. Those two witnesses in the latter temple are the only place God's word will be proclaimed at that point. It's the only place you can go to find it. Remember Amos 3, about the or 4 I guess it is, about the partial famine, and then Amos 8, the full famine of the word, which they go from sea coast to sea coast and cannot find. When people begin to start waking up, there's only one place at that point they'll be able to go. Now you can go from coast to coast and from one city to another and you can find the word of God here and there but it's going to become completely scarce and when the church flees it's going to completely be gone the only place the only ones who will be proclaiming the word of God are the two witnesses but they're instructed to leave the court of the Gentiles out they're not even to go to the world at first their first job is to put the church together that's what it's talking about in Haggai in, Haggai, in the book of Zechariah chapters two, three, and four, that the remnant will be stirred to come to them and the latter temple will be built. So this is all about that latter temple being built and what does Christ tell the church to be? It tells us to be a light set on a hill for the world to see. And we've not done much of that. We've tried to hide from the world. We've tried to look a little like the world during Mr. Armstrong's uh, time here. We tried to avoid being mentioned as a church. We were introduced to the people, new people, as representatives of Ambassador College. We had read those things about persecution and death coming, and we were a little paranoid. So we tried to do the work of God as a church without being recognized as a church wherever possible. It was a calling work only. Mr. Armstrong went before the kings of this world, he didn't give them a message of repentance. He gave them a very soft message of give and get. He tried to show himself somewhat as a statesman more than as a minister. 
that's going to change. When they weren't after us, we were paranoid. Now that they're going to come after us, we had better not be paranoid. We'd better stand on top of the mountain and be a light to the world. Are you ready for this? Because this is all going to be a standoff between a little bitty bitty church and all the kingdoms of this earth. That's what this book is all about. And the holy city shall they tread underfoot 42 months. Who's the holy city? Hebrews 12, 22 and 23. Revelation 21. They're going to tread the church underfoot for 42 months. Three and a half years. The church, the, the faithful remnant, flees to a place of safety prepared for her. But the rest are going to be stomped under the Gentiles for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses. You want to know where the power comes, when it comes? And they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score days clothed in sackcloth. So we got 42 months here, 1260 days, and then we're protected for time, times, and half a time. And he, the end of uh, Revelation 12, going back to a, an earlier sermon, we obviously will have a 360-day year again, and we're going to see that probably outlined for us in the book of Daniel if we ever get there. I will give power to my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy three and a half years. Here's where they go to the world. Power is given to destroy the kingdoms of this earth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. The only place that's mentioned in the whole Bible is Zechariah 4. There is an absolute connection intertwined here that it cannot be denied. I mean, you can deny it, but you can't prove it. Zechariah 3 and 4 tie directly to Revelation 11. And Haggai and Zechariah are sister books which talk about the latter temple and those who will lead it. So they will put the church back together as per Haggai, and then they will be given power to go against the world. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. I don't know that they're going to have a little uh, knob here on the side of their cheek where they can turn the fire on or not. I doubt if this is even voluntary. I imagine it's something that comes directly from God so that if any man tries to hurt them, it just automatically comes on and extinguishes them. I don't know that they will be in that sense given fiat or power to kill whomever they wish. That doesn't seem the way God would do things. I mean, even when the shadow was passing that healed people, to use a positive example, it wasn't the apostle who, who moved his shadow. You know, he'd, he'd step over so he could heal this one and step back so that one wouldn't be healed if his shadow moved back or forward. No, just wherever it happened to fall, wherever he walked, God was doing something. And I think that that is the same kind of power that will be given here. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. There's a tie-in with Elijah, remember James, and uh, in the account in the Old Testament where shut off rain for that period of time. And have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. They do have power at their whim, their desire, to give plagues over the whole earth. Here's the tie-in with Egypt and what Moses and Aaron did. This is a world stage. 
And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. Their power will have been shattered at that point. God will just simply remove it. And then they can be killed like any other human being. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Makes it very clear here that Jerusalem today is Sodom and Egypt. The holy city, the new Jerusalem, is the church. And that is what is going to be trampled for 42 months. You can see very clearly in Daniel 11 and Matthew 24 that we will be killed and the church trampled. And the scriptures all put together show that 90% of the church is going to die. Perhaps some will live through that tribulation of three and a half years, but boy, I can hardly see how. Only if God preserves them, perhaps. And perhaps he can. Or will. I know he can, but perhaps he will. But there is a scripture that indicates that they will have to die for what they believe and show that they will not take the mark of the beast. So this is all about the church. These two prophets, verse 10, end of the verse, tormented them that dwell on the earth. See what I mean about an international confrontation? They torment everyone who lives on the face of this earth. <coughs> verse 10, before that, it says, And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth. The whole earth is going to have a big party when they die. And then that's the end, see? The power of the holy people will have completely been shattered. It will have nothing. There will be no power left. Okay, verse 15. This, Well, here's another good point in verse 13. In the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell, speaking of Sodom and Egypt, Jerusalem today, and in the earthquake were slain of men 7,000, and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. When we get into Daniel 9, we're going to see that Jerusalem has to be built, has yet to be built at the end time. But it's not speaking of physical Jerusalem over there. It's there today, is it not? Unless the Palestinians blew it up today, it's there. And it's going to remain there, and it's still going to be there when the two witnesses die three and a half days before the first resurrection. Because at that point, first well, no, right after the resurrection, a great earthquake comes at the first resurrection, it says here. And a tenth part of the city falls. Earthquake destroys 10% of the city. So the point I'm trying to get at is why would that Jerusalem need built? It's still there, and it will remain there until the first resurrection. It says so clearly right here. So if a Jerusalem is to be built, and we'll get to that in Jeremiah, I mean Jeremiah 9, Revelation 9, and Zechariah 2, it has to be a different Jerusalem. We are the heavenly Jerusalem, and perhaps there will be a physical Jerusalem built as well, but it will be in a different place. We'll get to that more as we go. But I wanted to make the tie-in right here. Okay, verse 15, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, oh, there's a point back here I wanted to make. 
in chapter 10, verse 7. Let's go back and pick that up before we go on. I got on something else and then got away from it. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished. There's where we stopped. As he has declared to his servants the prophets. What do the prophets write about? Do they talk about physical Israel, which was given physical promises? They had the old covenant. They were not given spiritual promises of eternal life, were they? Who was? We are. We are given that. But the holy prophets wrote about that. They wrote about spiritual Israel at the end. This is a critical point to understand. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Haggai, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Psalms, all wrote about the mystery of God. They declared this. The servant, his servants, the prophets, declared this. That is, those prophecies were written about the, old, the New Testament church, which has to do with the mystery of God, that man become God and that we be resurrected at the first resurrection. That is the message of all the holy prophets of the past. Are we making this connection? I've harped on it enough, we should be. And I think we are. They weren't writing about physical Israel except collaterally. Because physical Israel will not even be dealt with except punished at the end. They will not be dealt with in terms of salvation until the millennium and great white throne judgment. They're not even a factor today. So when we read Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and Daniel, it has a, those books have to be talking about the church at the end. They are end-time books, and the message, first and foremost, is about the mystery of God. He states here unequivocally that those prophets wrote about the mystery of God. Combine that with... Romans 15:4 that we read last week. Let's tie it in right here since we're since it's on my mind. Romans 15 verse 4. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we might through patience and comfort of the scriptures have hope. The Old Testament prophecies are there to give the New Testament church hope. There's a certain hope there for physical Israel, but only in terms of the millennium or the great white throne judgment. It's written there, Paul is writing to the Roman Church of God. And he says all those things were written to give us hope. Tie that with Revelation 10:7, and the conclusion should be unmistakable. Now let's go on down to verse 11 and verse 18, which prompted me to think about going back to that where it says, And the nations were angry, and your wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should give reward to your servants, the prophets. We've already been judged, see. Your servants, the prophets, and to the saints. He's not coming to judge us then. Judgment is now upon the spiritual house of Israel. He's going to judge the rest of the world and to give reward to us. We will either rise or we won't. Our judgment will be complete by then. 
to judge the rest of the world with whom he has been angry, and give reward to your servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear your name, small and great, and should destroy them which destroy, corrupt, or pollute the earth by evil deeds. So this is all about the 144,000, the church. If you want to know what the book of Revelation about, is about, it's about the church first and foremost. That's what it was directed to in chapter 1, 2, and 3, and is mentioned throughout the book. <coughs> and the nations of this world and the beasts that rise out of the sea and all the other beasts that are mentioned here are only mentioned as they have reference to and connection with and plots against the church. Because, as it says in verse 9 of chapter 12, the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. <laughs> he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. He has deceived the whole earth, except for the few whom the Father has opened the minds of and called them out of. So really, there are only two groups of people here at the end those who have been called and those who have not been called. And Satan is going to hate those who have been called. He's not that concerned about the rest because they've are, they're already deceived. Now, in anger and frustration, he will carry out his anger against them. He wants all mankind destroyed. But his main concern is going to be spiritual Israel, the church. He will seek and find every last member of the church he can and kill them between now and the first resurrection. Every one that God will allow him to kill, he will kill. That's all this book is about. <clears throat> okay, let's go on down to chapter 12. I've already dipped into it a little bit. There appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars, speaking of the church here, and she being with child cried, travailing in birth, and pain to be delivered. There are many, many scriptures in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel which use the same analogy. The book of Micah talks about give, giving birth, not to, and there's a place that talks about not staying long in the birthing place. In other words, do all we can to get this job done. What are we supposed to be doing? Giving birth to Christ in our lives so that we think and act like him. Birth, the birth of righteousness, and he is righteousness. We're straining to give birth to righteousness, brethren, and we're having a great deal of trouble doing it. May have to be taken C-section, that is, Christ section. <laughs> no, we will be in pain and we will deliver naturally with his help. There won't have to be that kind of intervention. She travailed in birth, and there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. Speaking of Satan, because he is really the protagonist between us and God. He's the one that's trying to stop us from getting there. He's the one that stopped Michael, or Gabriel it was, I guess, there in Daniel, from bringing the message to Daniel. Twenty-one days he was studying, so he got two cherubims there and overcame it. He's doing everything he can. What is he doing? What is Satan's focus right now? Let's read it in verse 10 of chapter 12. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, 
which accused them before our God day and night. Satan goes before the throne of God. He is at this point allowed to day and night accusing you and me. How pitiful it is when we accuse one another. How pitiful when we do what Satan is doing his best to achieve. Think about that. And they overcame him, not by their own strength, but by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. He who seeks to save his life will lose it. He who seeks to lose it in Christ will save it. And with the brotherhood. What is the work of God, as an aside here? Mr. Armstrong told us the work of God was preaching the gospel. And in one sense, that's part of the work of God. But I don't think that is at all the complete picture. The work of God is to fulfill the mystery of God. The work of God is to take human beings and make them into God. That is his work. And Mr. Armstrong, in an overall sense, understood that. I think he emphasized that we're not here for personal salvation. We're here to do the work as a way to get money, if I might be so crude. That was the bottom line to that. But the work of God truly is turning man into God. So our personal salvation is very, very important. We're to be one of those 144,000. That is our first job and responsibility is to become qualified to be one of those 144,000. Now, secondarily, we should love our brother as ourself, not more than, but as much as ourself, and we should work just as hard for every one of our brothers and sisters that they might also attain to be one of those 144,000. That is the work. Now, in a larger sense, Mr. Armstrong was used as a part of that work to call those who became brothers and sisters and then to work with them to attain righteousness. Our job is first to get ourselves straightened out individually, number one, me, so that I might be an example to my brothers and sisters and turn many to righteousness. For it says, he who turns many to righteousness will shine as the star. So the real work of God is to get ourselves straightened out and set an example for others. Not straighten them out ourselves, but straighten them out by example. As they see our good example, our iron will sharpen their iron. If we set the right example and we sand our own warts off, they may find some sandpaper and work on their own warts. You see? We cannot be a personal committee of one to straighten everybody else out. Our primary job is to straighten ourselves out and then be a light to the others and ultimately a light to the world who ultimately will be our brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God through the millennium and great white throne judgment. That's what the work is really about. All right. Here's where the confrontation gets really strong down in verse 13. When the dragon saw that he was cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. I don't think he's been cast to the earth yet. 
I remember Herbert Armstrong, when, they would ha when we would have terrible troubles in the church, he'd say, well, I think Satan's been cast down. And then he'd back off that, and a year or two or three later, he'd say, well, I think Satan's been cast down. I don't think he has been yet, because he has not come and persecuted the church. The church basically has not been persecuted. We get a little bad press now and then, or we might get fired from a job now and then, or whatever. But it's not the persecution of Matthew 24. It's not the persecution of Revelation 5, the fifth seal. It's not the persecution of Daniel, where he prevails over the holy people. It's not where he starts killing the saints. Now, some of that has been perpetrated throughout history. It did to the early New Testament church. But we're talking about an end-time book here, about events that would happen afterward, just before the return of Christ. That's what the book of Revelation is about. So it's talking about persecution at the end. Do you think he's going to wait four years after he's cast down and can't go before God's throne to persecute us? As soon as he hits the earth and can't go back, he is going to be so angry he comes after us right now. Now, perhaps that's speculative, but from what I've read of Satan the devil, I don't think he's going to just sit around and say, well, I'll go persecute him, but I'll wait a while. Don't think he thinks that way. No, he'll come after us right then. So when he is cast down, he persecutes the woman which brought forth the man-child. Now, the woman which brought forth the man-child, we're talking about righteousness, Christ being born in us. Those who are righteous will flee, and he will chase them. Most will be left behind, 90%, only a tithe, a small remnant or a small tithe according to Isaiah 1.9, and also Ezekiel 5, will be taken to safety. For the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for time, times, and half a time from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood or an army. Now this is interesting. An army chases the woman. We've always read this and connected it to the church, haven't we? I mean, that's been our belief for at least 50 years that I know of. Now, where did this army come from that chases after the woman? Let's tie this back to Matthew 24 and Luke 21. Luke 21 says that when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, Matthew 24 talks about when they put their foot in the temple. It's talking about the church. The church is going to be surrounded, the remnant church, put together by the two witnesses, I believe. Because the rest are going to be left behind. Remember, they're still scattered all over the earth. The latter temple is drawn by God and stirred to come to where the two witnesses are. Those are the only ones that could be surrounded by armies. And then it talks about an army chasing them. So the armies surround the church and... The church flees, the woman flees, and the army's chaser ties in perfectly, fits beautifully. And then an earthquake and they're swallowed up. The earth helped the woman, and the earth opened up her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was angry with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Those that are left behind have the commandments of God and keep them, basically. 
They're people who are keeping the Sabbath. They're people who are keeping the holy days, but who are spiritually proud and think they have need of nothing and haven't repaired their relationship with God. This isn't heathen he chases. It's those people who have and keep the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ whom he goes after. That's his sole goal at that point, is destroy everyone who keeps the Sabbath. That's why the mark of the beast is Sunday keeping. If you don't keep Sunday, you die. If you're left behind, you'll be given that choice. It won't take them long to figure out who's keeping the Sabbath at that point. It'll be real easy to do. Time is it getting to be. All right, then we get to chapter 13. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast, that's the peoples of the earth, the sea, a beast rise up out of the sea, out of the peoples, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horn ten crowns, and upon his head the name of blasphemy. Now, we've, we've talked about this being uh, the Roman Empire resurrected, the last resurrection of the Roman Empire, as indeed it is. I believe that. But if, as we go on in here, what does the scene change to? We're going to read a lot about Babylon in these next few chapters. Now, Babylon was the first kingdom, wasn't it? Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then Greek, then the Romans. Why is Babylon back in here? Oh, go back to Daniel. What does he talk about? Babylon the Great. I think we're going to see a tie-in with the church and the book of Revelation here and the confrontation between the church and Babylon at the end. And I think we're also going to see that all of those kingdoms that he talks about in the book of Babylon are not only historical. Maybe the church did come through the ages nose to tail. Just as those kingdoms of the world came through the ages nose to tail. But my feeling is that they are all going to exist at the end. And that's why the picture switches to Babylon, because Babylon was the granddaddy of them all. The Babylonian mystery system came out of those people before the flood. It came through the Tower of Babel. It came in the form of uh, Isis and Osiris and Nimrod and Semiramis. Throughout all those religions, they had the same gods. They had the same symbolism. People today have the same symbolism. The Jesuits, the Catholic Church, the Protestant churches, the Freemasons, all these organizations have the same symbols of Babylon. The crucifixes, the sun worship, they're all there. Look at their company logos. Look at their church logos. Look at their buildings. The influence of Babylon is all there. And it came through Medo-Persia. It came through Greece. Apollos, Zeus, these all go back to Semiramis and Nimrod. Rome kept the same symbols. The Roman Catholic Church has the same symbols. Nothing has changed. And when that kingdom is raised up at the end, it all overlaps. The Babylonian Empire became the Medo-Persian Empire, covered the same areas generally and the same peoples. When Greece became prominent, they covered the same area, the same peoples. The Roman Empire came, got a little bigger, but it covered the same areas and the same peoples first and got a little bigger from there. They're all one and the same. And this end time one is going to cover the same area to begin with. The Roman Empire covered Europe. It covered 
to the Balkans. It went even east from there, covered the Holy Land. What do you see today? The European Union just keeps getting bigger and bigger. They're supposed to put another 14 nations in there, including a lot of those in the Balkans. Why do you think they're trying to control that area now? Because they're trying to rebuild the same Roman Empire, the same Greek or Medo-Persian or Babylonian Empire. And they have designs on the Middle East as well in the oil that's there. So it would cover the same areas. Why am I getting into Daniel? Because it's all right here. We've just talked about the Roman Empire here, and now we're going to get into the chapters that describe the whole system as Babylon. So the tie-in between Daniel and Revelation is inseparable. And they are to be understood in the same light between the church and all the kingdoms of this world arrayed against the church. We will be public enemy number one. Satan's enemy number one. And unless we are protected, we will die. Because that's what Daniel and Revelation and Luke, Matthew 24 and Luke 21 all say. They will prevail over the saints. We're going to read it right here. Revelation 13, verse 7. And it was given to him to make war with the saints. Who are the saints? The church of God. And to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. See, it's a world-ruling empire. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, you better listen. He that leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He that kills with a sword must be killed with a sword. Who's the hammer of the whole earth who's killing people with a sword today? America. We are the leaders of Babylon. We will be destroyed. Babylon has fallen, has fallen. Babylon will fall, and they'll get a new leader. The Holy Roman Empire, Babylon. And then that will fall shortly thereafter when Christ returns. And he, verse 13, this beast that comes up, does great wonders so that he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men and deceives them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast. Pharaoh and his magicians had all Egypt under their control and Israel because they worshiped the same gods that Egypt worshiped. And only by the power of Almighty God did they get away from there and away from those gods. And only by his power can we escape the gods of this world. Then it talks about the mark of the beast. And if you don't have that mark on you, you're dead. Now verse four, chapter 14. And I looked and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion with him, 144,000. Comes back to this. Mentioned it in verse seven or chapter 7. Now it comes back to it <coughs> because we are the focus. We're the apple of God's eye. Verse 4, these are they which were not defiled with women. Virgins, spiritually speaking. We'll get into the eunuchs when we get into Daniel. But the tie-in is the same. These are they which follow the Lamb wherever he goes. He goes back to his Father's throne in heaven with us. The first resurrection, we rise to meet him in the air. He goes back to his Father's throne. We have a wedding supper. We stay there with him, and he comes back to the earth. We come with him. And wherever we, he is, we will be, as one scripture says. These were redeemed from among men. This, these are the redeemed. Who does Paul talk about being the redeemed? The church. 
being the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Paul talks about the first fruits being the church of God all through his gospels or his, his, uh, his letters. So this is about the church again. And in their mouth was found no guile. And then it says in verse 7, as by contrast to those who are the first fruits who are resurrected, verse 7, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she had made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. This system is committing spiritual fornication and adultery against God. And we have to be virgin from that, brethren. We cannot copulate with this world in any form or fashion, or we are no longer virgin. Now, if we have had relationships with this world in the past, those can be forgiven under the blood of the Lamb, and we are then, our virginity is restored. But, once your virginity is restored, and this is uh, something for us hard to grasp, but it's speaking spiritually. Once it's restored, dare we go back and fornicate with this world anymore? Do you see why I keep reading all these scriptures about come out of her, my people? That we need to examine ourselves and see how much of Babylon is left in us? If they go to Daniel here, but I don't have time. There followed another angel saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Do we want to fornicate with this world? Do we want to think like it thinks? Do the things it does? Enjoy its entertainments? Enjoy its foods and drinks? Do we want to be a part of it in any way? We'll drink of the wrath of God if we do. Verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Possible to please him without faith. Keep the commandments, be patient, and have faith. Critical things for us to remember right now. So the resurrection occurs, as we've already seen, and then in chapter 15, those seven last plagues are unleashed upon those who remain. Then it talks about them, first, fifth, sixth, seventh angels, and so on, sounding. And when the seventh angel sounds, it is done. At that time, verse 19, the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give to her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. So Babylon will fall again. The present leader of the world is America and Israel, and we will fall. And then the beast will come up, beast and the false prophet, and then they will fall. That's why I think, not just for emphasis, but why it says Babylon has fallen, has fallen. It falls twice within a very short while. One leader is destroyed, another leader comes up, and that one also is destroyed. Then came one of the seven angels, which is the seven vials, and talked with me and said, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great whore that sits upon many waters, or upon the faces, the, the peoples, 
with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And then she is given her judgment. So, this is the confrontation. This is what it's all about. It talks about these ten horns here and what they will do again. There's some flashbacks in the book of Revelation. Uh, verse 12 of chapter 17, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings one hour with the beast. Remember iron and miry clay and how it doesn't hold together very well, but ten kings. The globalists right now are planning on dividing the earth into ten sections. So I don't know that our previous understanding of ten nations, specifically in, in uh, Europe, was quite correct. There are more than ten nations in Europe on the EUC now, and they are going to put a bunch more in. But I can show you a lot of scriptures that talk about a great company of nations coming against us. But I think their object and their desire, and I've seen maps of how they divided it up, is to divide the earth into ten sections and have someone over each. And it is a world-ruling empire. It had influence over all kings and, uh, let's see, where, what did it say back here? All kings and peoples and so on. So that is their goal, is to rule the whole earth. Doesn't Satan rule the earth? Isn't he the prince of the power of the air, given power over the whole earth? He can put his people in charge. They can divide it into ten. So wherever you are on earth, if that's the case and how it works out, you'll be in one of those ten and you'll be sought out. You've been called out, but if you're left behind, you'll be sought out for death. These have one mind, verse 13, and shall give their power and strength to the beast. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. So we were called unto Herbert Armstrong. We are hopefully being chosen now, and if we endure the end, we will also be faithful, and we'll be in that first resurrection. So again, it brings it right back down to the church and ultimately the 144,000 shows the contrast of God destroying the beast and the saints being saved. And he said to me, The waters which you saw where the horse sits are people and multitudes and nations and tongues, and the ten horns which you saw upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and eat the things it eats, do the things it does, think the things it thinks. We're sinning the same as she is. That's why Isaiah says, See no evil, hear no evil and we will also receive the same plagues. When we get into Daniel, I'll show you something that echoes this very, very clearly. Next week. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. And then it goes on and shows how the kings of this earth live deliciously with her and then how that is destroyed. Verse 20. Of verse chapter 18. Rejoice over her, you heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. She's going to do her best to destroy us. God is going to resurrect us, and the mystery of God will be finished, and then Babylon will be destroyed, and vengeance is God's, not ours. We can't fight this system. And just because we're par paranoid doesn't mean they aren't after us. All right, chapter 19. 
I heard a voice, great voice of much people in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power to the Lord our God. He judged the whore and destroyed her. Now let's go down to verse 7. We'll see the contrast again. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife have made herself ready. We have our responsibility in this. We're not only trying to give birth to righteousness, we're also trying to be, prepare ourselves as a bride fit for her husband. As virgins wearing white. That's why the connection to Isaiah 52 is there, where he tells us to put on the, our holy garments and to shake the bond of Babylon off our necks. He says, you're, you're, he gives a picture of us laying on the ground and Babylon walking on us. He says, break those bonds and sit up. Don't let Babylon walk all over you. Brethren, we have been allowing Babylon to walk on us. It's time we sit up. Get out of the dust. How do you keep holy white garments when you're laying in the dust being walked on, I ask you. We've got to get disconnected. In every possible way we must become disconnected to this world because he who is friends of the world is enemies of God, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. He said, Right blessed are they which are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to these, me, these are the true sayings of God. So he's starting to wrap this up now, talking about the bride of Christ. And then it reiterates how he is going to smite the nations and so on uh, in chapter 19. Then in chapter 20, he gives a, <laughs> a summary of the resurrections and the different judgments that will be given. Verse 9, And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about in the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven to devour them. Remember, Jerusalem is going to be built in her place, her own place, uh, as we saw in Zechariah last week. Still going to be there until the first resurrection, physical Jerusalem. A type has removed it somewhere else. Where the church is, where heavenly Jerusalem is, is what counts. Then it'll be built back in its own place. So, we have a summary then in chapter 20, sort of an inset of the resurrections and how everyone is going to have an opportunity. And then in chapter 21, we see the bride, the holy, the, the, the holy city, verse 2, New Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So we, the heavenly city, we, New Jerusalem, come down from heaven as a bride for Jesus Christ. It says down in verse 9, Come here, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he showed me the holy Jerusalem, the great city, descending out of heaven from God. As Mr. Armstrong said, we win. We will have become the 144,000, those of us who are considered called, chosen, and faithful. And the kingdoms of this world will have put down, and Christ will bring us down then to rule those who remain throughout the millennium to offer salvation. Verse 16 of chapter 22. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. He summarizes here. He opened with it talking about the church, and he ends the whole thing talking about the church. The things that I testified to you about the churches, 
And then he reminds us, I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that hears say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. We as the bride, in tandem with Jesus Christ, will be at that time offering salvation to anyone who wishes, to anyone who comes. In the present economy, only those whom the Father calls can come. John 6, 44. At that time, it will change. We will be offering salvation to people in the millennium and the great white throne judgment, along with Christ. For I testify to every man that hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add to these things, God shall add to him the plagues that are written in this book. We'd better be careful. If any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city. We are the holy city, remember, and from the things which are written in this book. So the whole book of Revelation is of the confrontation between the church and Satan, between Christ and Satan or the church and the world, which are the same. That's all this book is about. That's its purpose, to show us what will happen, who we are, what we are, what will happen to us, and what the ultimate end is. And as Mr. Armstrong said, we win. Now, with that background and that understanding of the end time, that understanding of the book of Revelation, that it's all about the church and this world against it, then we are prepared to go to the book of Daniel and, I think, begin to understand it for the first time. And God willing, next time I speak, we'll get to that.